Hello, and welcome back to Exhaling Words, the language podcast where I just get to talk and you just have to listen. I'm your host, Aaron, and thank you for tuning in for another week. So, as I was thinking about what I wanted to discuss this week, I had a couple topics sort of converge, and this is probably going to turn into multiple episodes, and I'm hoping I can divide them properly, but... So, Norru's just happened, and for those of you who don't know, Norru's is, uh, we typically describe it as the Iranian New Year. Norru's is the first day of spring, it marks the start of the Iranian calendar. Um, It's not just an Iranian holiday, insofar as, you know, the modern state of Iran is concerned. Um, It's really a holiday that's celebrated all over um, the Iranit or Iranic world, so places where the um, historically Iranian world has had influence. So everything from nearby places like Azerbaijan or Armenia, um, although it's not as really as big in Armenia, to, um, you know, places in Central Asia. Um, It's also, you know, it's just, it's uh, spring equinox, so, you know, or Yes, spring equinox. I had to double check that. I was like, solstice? No, spring equinox. And um, so it's also celebrating, you know, there's historically, you know, uh, Celtic holidays around this or pagan holidays around this, whatever term you want to use for this. So it's not just an Iranian holiday. However, in my realm, I often think of it as an Iranian holiday because because I spend time with um, Iranian friends. I go to people's houses. We have parties, whatever. And, you know, a lot of my social circle is, you know, from that region. So, in my mind, that's what it is. So, you know, Norus. Anyways, so I thought that, okay, it's Norus, let me talk about Persian, let me talk about, I don't know, Iranian linguistics, and my, you know, half-assed PhD that never came to fruition. And um, I had a lot of topics come to mind. Obviously, some of them are very, like, linguistic-related, and then some of them are also... Um, very personal about language learning. So actually, I think I'm just going to keep this intro and I'm going to use this for the next several episodes over the next several weeks. So let's start. Okay. So one of the topics I've been thinking about is the importance of, let's call it passive listening. Now, I don't know if passive listening is the best term, because I don't know how much of this is passive, and I I read several articles from other like language learners and bloggers and stuff online talking about how passive learning is a waste of time, or that passive listening is a waste of time, that you're not getting anything out of it, and you need to think more about like either active listening, or I don't know. I don't know if it's active. I don't know if it pa- if it's passive. Look, at the end of the day, I do what I do. And I don't research terminology behind language learning. So I'm going to call it passive listening. If it's not passive, whatevs. So when I talk about passive listening, I talk about several things. The most common form that I usually bring up is with music. And for those of you who have followed me for some time, or hell, for a day, you know I post music all day long. I listen to music in so many different languages. Sometimes it's just it's something I don't understand at all. And sometimes it's a language that I'm quite proficient in and I'm picking up words or whatever. 
And there's obviously different approaches in terms of are you picking up vocab? Are you trying to sort of, in this sense, actively listen and try to make a learning experience out of it? Or are you just trying to immerse yourself? Now, I tell my students from day one, like, listen to music. It was advice that was given to me 16, 16, 17, a long time ago. When I first started studying Spanish, I really loved it. And I asked my teacher, like, what do I do? How do I get more of this? And her recommendation to me was just listen to music, watch movies, watch TV, you know, just do any and everything you can in the language. And because I was very interested in music, I was a musician for a while. Side note, apparently people don't realize this. Like, I was raised in a musical family. My mother has perfect pitch. I have played six or seven instruments over the years. I wanted to be a professional musician. And my mother thought I was going to end up poor. And so she told me to study languages in college. And so that's what I did. Joke's on her. (laughs) But... Yeah, so this is why I get really big on music is because I was a musician and, you know, I've played piano, cello, viola, upright bass, electric bass, French horn. Yeah, I've mostly always done string instruments. I really want to learn oud. Uh, I think that would be fun. But anyways, getting off topic. So music is like super big for me, um, which is why I listen to so much music. It's why I have such an eclectic taste in music because a lot of it for me depends on you know, emotion or genre or different things. So like the other day I posted about, you know, really loving traditional Georgia music and I do, but I also really love fusions of like traditional Arab music, traditional Georgian music, traditional Armenian music with like modern pop vibes. Or I, I think this is why I'm really attracted to like Chalga in Bulgarian music is because it's this fusion of like traditional Ottoman Turkish music with like cheesy Eastern European pop. So right down my alley. Anyways, I'm getting distracted. So I tell my students to listen to music from day one. I don't care if you don't know a single word in Arabic or Spanish or French. Find music that you enjoy and just listen to it all the time. Now, I do not think in any way, shape, or form that just listening to music is going to teach you a language. Of course not. I would never make that claim. I wouldn't even claim something like watching movies with subtitles will eventually make you learn a language. At the end of the day, languages involved active learning. This is often the criticism of passive learning by a lot of people on the internet is that they go, well, passive learning doesn't teach you anything. Passive learning, you know, is just an excuse to make people feel better. And I think if we overemphasize passive learning, maybe, maybe that's true. Obviously, we're not going to get anywhere without active learning. And I'm not just talking about things like sitting down with a textbook and learning grammar, but there are ways to do active listening or these sort of passive skills like listening to music or watching a movie and make it active, you know, pause it, challenge yourself with the subtitles, look up words, you know, try to understand what's going on without subtitles. There are a lot of ways to make it much more of an active endeavor. But I think there truly is value in passive. And this is why. One of the things that people always say about writing, for example, is that if you want to be a better writer, read. Now, you hear that phrase a lot when it comes to our native languages. Like Even in English, people told me, if you want to be a better writer in English, read English literature. Read people who are good writers in English, 
and you will start to sort of internalize their style or pick up what we call in language learning incidental vocabulary, which is vocabulary that isn't actively learned, but is picked up while doing another skill like reading. And so in reading, we can learn to become better writers. Obviously, there are active ways to learn writing and to improve our writing, but reading is sort of a pseudo-passive way that'll improve our writing in the long run. This applies to listening. Now, obviously, just as much as reading alone does not create a good writer, you still need to practice. Listening alone does not create a good speaker. You still have to practice. And so I by no means am saying, like, don't practice speaking, just listen, and eventually you'll just be able to, you know, speak fluent Arabic. No, of course not. That's not how it works. However, I believe that using passive skills like listening and reading can very much lay a solid foundation for building those active skills. So I first want to look at this in terms of an elementary language learner. But before I get into that, I want to define a term. Okay. So the other week I talked about beatboxing was the name of the episode was linguistic beatboxing. And I didn't actually talk about beatboxing if you haven't listened to the episode, but I talked about creating sounds. And I want to talk about the term phonotactics. So if you're in any way used to sort of some linguistic terminology, you've probably heard the term phonetics, which is generally, you know, it's the study of sounds, of speech sounds. And if you've studied a little bit more, you've heard the term phonology, which is the study of sort of how speech sounds are distinguished within a language. Or actually, let me pull this up on the internet. It's the system of contrastive relationships among the speech sounds that constitute the fundamental components of a language. So this is where the other week I was talking about phonemic distinction between, you know, aspiration. And so phonetics tells me that some letters are aspirated and some letters are not. Phonology tells me that in a language like Armenian, aspiration carries value. Phonotactics, which will be our word of the day, is, according to the internet, a branch of phonology that deals with restrictions in a language on the permissible combinations of phonemes. So phonetics is speech sounds. Phonology is specific sounds to a language and how they carry value. Phonotactics is the rules around what sort of sound combinations are allowed in a language. Now, I bring this up because some languages have certain sound combinations. This is why we have accents. So, for example, in Arabic or in Persian, two very different languages there, um, the uh, word initial clusters are not very much appreciated, uh, particularly s followed by a stop. So things like ST, SP, SB, S, well, SD probably wouldn't happen. Even SB probably wouldn't happen. This is why we, you know, get used to, like in an Iranian accent, you say a stop and not stop, but you say a stop. And the same thing happens in Spanish. And we use it to teach sort of like voice actors how to do accents or, you know, it's one of those things that now like, me and Iranian friends will like poke fun at these sorts of accents. If you're in the group, you're allowed to do it. Um, 
but but this is a phonotactic feature that Spanish and Persian, for example, don't allow this word initial sound, and this is why we add the eh. And this is why when you look at like Romance languages, for example, in French you have special, but in Spanish you have especial because you can't have the sp at the beginning of the word. This is phonotactics. The phonotactics of Spanish does not allow for word initial sibilant stop combinations. Okay? So this is where listening to music can be super important. Listening to music or just immersing yourself through passive listening in a language can allow you to intuit and internalize some of the fundamental rules about a language's phonology, both in terms of what are the different sounds, phonology, and, and, and you know how they're contrasted, as well as the phonotactics, as well as understanding that certain sound combinations exist or don't exist. Let's look at some other examples. In Hebrew, okay, I speak Arabic, and I speak other languages that have sounds that are found in Hebrew. So when I started studying Hebrew, I had no problem with letters like chet and saying ch, or a letter like resh and saying resh. Whether it's a stronger resh like r, or whether it's a softer one which is closer to a German tap like r. This does not phase me. I can, I can do these sounds. However, putting them side by side, to be honest, is kind of hard for me. And I can't even think of a situation right now off the top of my head where I would have them side by side. But I know that this is something that I've struggled with in the past. And every now and then I'll, I'll hit a word and it sort of tricks me up a little bit. But yeah, this is like a real struggle. However, listening to music and listening to spoken Hebrew, you start to get used to this. You get used to this sound because you're hearing it. And then as you try to sing along or as you learn to speak, then you yourself get to start doing it. This is where it goes from passive to active. And this is why I'm saying that active active is still very much important. I by no means am saying that active skills don't have value or that you don't need to practice. You know, that's that will be the caveat during this whole episode is that at no point am I saying that just passive listening is going to make you fluent. No, you still have to actively learn to do this. However, this is why immersion has value because through immersion, we internalize things on a almost like pseudo subconscious level. And so when we go to produce a sound, we can go, oh, that doesn't sound quite right because that's not how I heard it when I was listening to, you know, that Eden Benzaken song that I really like. You know, that's not how she says that word. You know, this is also really good about like stress. For example, there are some words that I know to read and write in certain languages, but I don't know their stress. However, because I hear them in songs, although songs can sometimes shift stress, or because I hear them in movies and I hear people talking, you can start to internalize stress. So similarly with Hebrew, I can learn that Hebrew traditionally has tonic stress which means that the last syllable of the word is stressed. However, you start to internalize that not every word has tonic stress. Or for example, if you add suffixes to a word, does the stress shift with the suffix? So for example, let's look at the present tense of the verb to, to study, lomed. He studies, who lomed. The stress there is on the final syllable, lomed. 
if I add the feminine suffix, lomedet, I don't say lomedet, I say lomedet. The stress is, is, is still there. So it's no longer tonic, it's now penultimate, but that's, the terms aren't important. The stress stays where it was, even though we added a suffix. However, when I add the plural suffixes, the stress moves to the end. So I have lomdim and lomdot. Now, part of this has to do with, well, no, it has to do with stress. So because these have long vowels in them, lomdim, im, and lomdot, o, these are longer, so they carry more weight. And then as a result of it, the short ed from lomed gets lenited into a schwa, and so you don't have it lomdim. So then that might be a bad example. But anyways, these sorts of intuitions come from passive learning, from just passively listening to the language that, you know, if I ever heard somebody say lomedet, I would know that that's wrong. Or if I went to read the word lomedet, I would know not to read it as lomedet because that doesn't sound right to me. Okay? Does that make sense? I, I don't know why I think you would respond, but just say yes. Yes, it makes sense, Aaron. We get it. Um, another example, which I talked about the other week, talking about beatboxing, is the Georgian sound ka, which is this uvular adjective, ka. And I was talking about how it actually softens a lot. And I've talked about this in a previous episode, too, of me dealing with linguists and how I felt like they were too theoretical. But that's the thing, is that, like, when you have... It, like, word initially, for example, it stays relatively strong, so you have kava. Kava is, you know, the Georgian word for coffee. But then when you have a word like the Georgian word, word, which was my example the other week, which is sitkwa, it's not sitkwa, ka, it's not super strong, it's sitkwa. And the ka is still ka, but when it's in this sort of medial position in the middle of a cluster like this, softens in a way it doesn't actually soften the word is still or the the letter is still there but it doesn't sound exactly the same it's not overly strong and these are the sorts of things that you get from just listening to native speakers speak or listening to georgian music or listening to georgian news i don't care if i'm not understanding a single word of the news in georgian if i listen to the news in georgian i will start to internalize these kinds of rules whether they've been taught to me or not. If they're taught to me, that's great, because then I'm more aware. If they're not taught to me, then it just becomes this, well, that's not how that sounds. It needs to sound like this. And this reflects also how we learn our first language. Now, some people, you know, talk about full immersion and passive listening in terms of, you know, well, if we can replicate the way we learn our first language, that's somehow better. One place where we've seen this a lot is um, there's a... I don't know if I'd call it a movement or what, but there are people on the internet who follow AJATT or AJAT, um, which is all Japanese all the time, which is this idea of if you do full immersion, you will eventually get there. And I honestly haven't gotten that much into it because I don't fully believe in this. But I think the general idea is if you just immerse from day one and you're not even speaking, you're just really just input, 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 input. Eventually, you'll get to a point where you can start to output, and then you just do input, output, input, output, and you, you know, eventually get there. 
this, to a certain degree, replicates what we do with our L1, with our first language. And it's not that it's wrong. It's just that I think that, one, it's hard to do when you're, you know, when you're a fully grown adult, you want faster results. You have more cognitive processing, so you can actively learn a language, you know, through rules and, you know, those sorts of traditional methods. And, and it just, it happens faster that way, you know. How long does it take us to acquire our L1? Several years, you know, and then and then even then we actually actively learn it in school usually. So if I try to replicate that as an as an adult, how long is it going to take me to the point where I can talk or use this language? And, and most people want to be able to communicate faster than you know three years from now. So I don't believe in that whole system. However, I think that things like using passive listening, like listening to music or watching TV, even at a very elementary level where you don't know anything, is the foundation for this, and it does play a role that it's helpful. Now, the other situation where I want to talk about the value of using passive listening in your studies is at a higher level, at an intermediate to advanced level, particularly advanced. But I think I think this can be done at an intermediate level as well, depending on where you are in that intermediate, maybe closer to a B2 or something. Now, earlier I mentioned the phrase about, you know, if you want to be a better writer, read. You know, if you want to be a better speaker, listen. Listen to great speakers, read great works of literature, and sort of mimic these people until you find your own style. This is kind of where I'm going. I think when we talk about this with our native language, we're usually talking about stylistics. We're talking about how do I write more eloquently? How do I speak more eloquently? Or we're talking about very specific problems like accent reduction. You know, if I listen to a native speaker and I try to replicate them, am I going to reduce my accent? You know, these sorts of situations. However, I think that this can apply to more fundamental and structural things, even just down to how to speak a language. I think this particularly applies well to syntax. Syntax, for those of you who don't know, is questions of word order, usually. So you can actively learn vocabulary. You can actively learn grammar. And I should say, you can actively learn syntax. There are rules about syntax in languages. And usually, they're taught at a higher level. Some foundational things are taught at lower levels. So, for example, people who study German or most Germanic languages, you learn the V2 rule that the verb always comes second. Um, and so if you put an, an, an adverb as the first word in the sentence, you put the verb second and then you put the subject afterwards. Um, or same with like question words. So sometimes the foundational things like V2 construction in, in Germanic languages can be taught at an elementary level because it has to be taught at an elementary level. But sometimes other things are either, if they're taught, they're taught at a higher level, and then sometimes they're just not taught. So for example, you know, uh, French adverb placement. I was actively taught that in the passé composé, you can put short adverbs or you should put short adverbs after the verb, after the conjugated verb, but before the participle. But like long adverbs, uh, you don't put there. So, for example, if I say like, oh, like you did it very well or you did it well, tu l'as bien fait. Um, and you put the bien before the fait there after the verb a. But if I wanted to say you did it too quickly, or, I don't know, let's just say too quickly, trop vite, 
I wouldn't say tu l'as trop vite fait. It sounds weird. Tu l'as fait trop vite. And so longer adverbs get put after the entire verbal phrase. And I do remember actively being taught this. I might have started to intuit it beforehand, but I do remember being told this at some point. But for example, my knowledge of Spanish syntax was something that was never taught to me. It was something that I learned working in South America. So for those of you who don't know, and you didn't listen to my earlier episodes, I've been to Peru four times, and I worked as an interpreter during some of those trips. During my first trip, my Spanish wasn't particularly great. I had only done maybe two years worth. And so I spoke where I could with people, but I did not actively interpret for the groups that I was working with. However, during my second, third, and fourth trip, I did. And during that first trip, really all I did was I sat there and I listened to the interpreters. I would listen to the English. I would listen to what the interpreter said in Spanish. And I started to intuit like, oh, this is best phrase this way. This is best phrase this way. And there came a point where I remember a girl at my church that I went to actively like asking me like, well, how do you know that this word goes there or something like that? And I couldn't give her an answer. And it was one of these things that I had intuited. This also happened to me with Persian. And this is why I bring this up during my series of Norru's episodes. And I feel bad because, you know, it took me 20 something minutes to even mention Persian here. And I'm so sorry. But when I studied Persian, I really struggled with syntax. Persian syntax is kind of weird sometimes. It has verb final, but then what do you do with subordinate clauses? Sometimes you can throw the verb before the subordinate clause if the subordinate clause is too long and you have like a basic to be sentence. And then a lot of times you shove in the subordinate clause and then throw the verb at the end. And when it's a really long sentence, like you read a news article sometimes, that gets complicated and hard to follow. And it made it really hard for me to like be able to speak with people because I would be in the middle of a sentence and then I'm like, okay, subordinate clause and then make sure the verb is right after I finish that clause. It just, it's hard to think through and sort of intuit and internalize how you do these things. Then you throw on top of that, you know, particularly Iranian Persian and people like to throw on these suffixes and there's reduplicative or not reduplicating, but like redundant suffixes where I already mentioned the antecedent previously or the or the direct object previously, but I'm going to throw the suffix at the end of the verb anyways. And some of the stuff, honestly, I still don't fully know, but I've gotten used to, I've gotten used to saying it now, or at least understanding it when other people say it. And this is what I mean by like, there are some things that you just learn from passive listening, from listening to news, from listening to music in Persian, from watching movies in Persian, from hanging out with my Iranian and my Afghan friends, and just listening to them talk, you start to internalize like, oh, that's how you would phrase that. And so I know now, like, in some situations, my phrasing is perfect. Like, I can say things and I'm like, oh, that's exactly how, you know, a native speaker would phrase that or something. But then there are times, especially with these longer and more complex sentences, I still don't actually know if what I'm saying is right half the time. And I just have to look at people and be like, is that how you say that? You know, or I say that. And then they sort of look at me funny. I was like, oh, that's not right. (laughs) So, yeah. However, there's only so much you can do in terms of teaching syntax and even if you teach syntax, syntax still has to be internalized because syntax is such a critical part of speaking or of writing or of using a language. 
it has to be internalized just like your grammatical rules. So even if you're actively teaching it, people have to be exposed to it enough that they're going to actively use it properly. And this is where passive listening becomes useful for intermediate and advanced students, is that even though it's passive, by using this form of sort of pseudo-immersion, because you can't go abroad, because you can't be immersed, you're giving yourself more and more exposure to how would I phrase that? How would you say that? And sometimes it becomes an active moment. Sometimes you're watching a movie and you hear a phrase and then you pause your movie and you're like, oh, that's an interesting phrase. I have to remember that. I have to write that down. And it can become a very active learning moment. But sometimes it's just, I listen to a lot of music. However, you know, like, when I learned the Hebrew verb to look at somebody, which is histakel, I immediately, like, thought, I don't even remember what the song is, but there's a song where he says several times, histakel alai, like, look at me. And, and, and pronouncing that verb comes naturally, and I don't think about the verb, and because I've internalized, because I've internalized how Hebrew verbal patterns work, I can say, like, you know, histakelti, histakelta, histakelt, histakel, histakel, uh, histakla. Uh, see, even now, that that form is not internalized. But I can say anim histakelit. Um, you know, so you start to internalize these forms because because of exposure. And now that I gave the example of Hebrew, I think that that applies well to Arabic too. When you do with Arabic verbal patterns, when you have internalized enough of these forms, you can produce new ones more easily because they're sort of, they're rooted in your subconscious now. So all of this is just to say, listen to more music, guys, and watch more movies. And maybe one day you'll be fluent. <laughs> But seriously, um, you know, I know that some people hear the term like passive listening and the value of passive listening, and some people are very much critics of that. And again, I by no means want to say that this will make you fluent, that passive listening is going to um, teach you a language all by itself. No, 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 no. You still have to learn. You still have to practice. You still have to put in the work and actively use the language and create output. Input is only one step in the journey. However... I do think that input is incredibly value and it's often underrated, especially for like, for example, those of you who are in college or in high school studying languages, I don't think there's enough input for what do we do outside of the classroom. And that's my thing that I used to tell my students and I still do sometimes with my private students is it's not just about coming to class and it's not just about homework. It's about when you're going to the gym, throw on that Arabic playlist. You know, when you're walking to class, throw on your Spanish playlist, whatever language you're learning, throw on your music, you know, watch a movie. And in addition to this internalization of features like syntax and pronunciation that can come from passive listening, you're also going to get secondary things like culture and history, you know, and that's just as important in language learning too. But that's, again, a conversation for another day. So please do not please do not overlook or underappreciate the value of passive listening. Recognize that it has a place alongside of active skills and active practice, 
But remember the place of passive listening and know that it can help you, even if it doesn't feel like it, even if you just started this language and you feel lost. I listen to music in Malayalam, I listen to music in Faroese, and I still sort of sit here and go, I have no idea what's happening. But I know that in the long term, this is going to help me. And so just just keep that in mind. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or thoughts or opinions or you just want to pick my brain about something or ask a question of request an episode topic, my name is Polyglot Aaron, P-O-L-Y-G-L-O-T-E-R-I-N on all major social media and at gmail.com. So please reach out to me. I love talking to you all. And I hope you're enjoying this series about Noru's and Persian-related episodes, even though I barely discussed Persian in this episode, I promise there will be more. So with that, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.